Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE master technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Our podcast is brought to you by That's The Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crust that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's The Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292, order online at thatsthesum.com, or download That's The Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome, Podcastville. You have found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is City Manager Doug Schultz. How are you doing today, Doug? I'm doing good. Thank you. Awesome. So um, I got a ton of questions for you, and I'm really excited that you came in today. Um, it's an honor and privilege to um, have you serve Bay Island and come in here and, and talk with me. I think it's a, a format that, you know, I think this format is a, is a growth mindset for me. I want to improve and learn th- things about the island. Um, I moved here probably about two years prior to you coming into your position, and everything seemed to be in flux back then. And then projects were happening all over the island, started to get a little bit developed. We had started to go in that 10-year period where you had to absorb so many people into the county, and there was some development going on. And I just kind of didn't know what was 
happening on Bainbridge Island. And I think this format's kind of cool where I can have people like yourself come in here and discuss it in layman's terms uh, a little bit about all these projects. Because there seems to be a lot going on in this city. Um, unfortunately, I guess you have given your resignation um, recently and I'm moving on. But I'd like to talk about some of the things that you've done and the direction of the island and the things that you love about it, things you're going to miss, um, the job that's ahead of you in the future in Banning, California. Um, this is not your first rodeo, correct? Yeah, uh, that's that's correct. I've I've done this a few times. And, um, East Sider. Yeah, I, I spent, uh, gosh, sixteen years um, between Medina and Normandy Park, and then before that, I was in Minnesota for ten years in two different cities there. So, been doing this for thirty years now. Medina's seen an incredible amount of growth, and so does Normandy Park. Correct. Yeah, Medina, during the time I was there, 1996 to 2006, uh, was the mega mansion boom uh, in that community. So uh, we saw, I wouldn't say a lot of growth, but a lot of redevelopment, um, consolidation of two, three nice-sized waterfront homes, and then they'd be turned into one mega mansion um, so we had all kinds of issues with tree removal, view impacts, um, shoreline, uh, steep slope issues, that type of thing. So, and just general change in the community. And before that, you uh, spent some time in the National Guard. Can you tell me about that? What was that experience like? Yeah, so I, I actually, um, in college, I decided to enlist in the Army National Guard for the GI Bill to help pay for college. And I uh, went through basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, spent about four months there in the heat and humidity, crawling around in the mud, <laughs> and uh, went back to Mankato, Minnesota, where I was going to school. And about six months later, the uh, battalion commander, commander came to me and said, yeah, we'd, we'd like to send you to officer candidate school. Would you be interested? You know, as a twenty-something kid, I thought, "Wow, this this is great." They want me to be an officer, so off to Fort Benning again. I became an officer, came back, and they told me that as an officer, unless you had active duty uh, time, you didn't qualify for the GI Bill. So the whole reason I had actually uh, enlisted and and became involved in the military was for the. GI Bill, and that didn't work out. But um, what I did gain from that experience was a tremendous amount of leadership skills, uh, understanding how to work with people, uh, how to get work done, um, and I think just a general um, – the, the, the experience was confidence building, uh, certainly, to be an officer in, in the military and, um, you know, Training and and understanding that the decisions that you would make if you were ever called to active duty could be life and death situations for people you care about. Um, not so much what I do in my job today necessarily, but certainly making decisions that you know affect people greatly. Uh, something that I've carried through most of my adult life. Speaking about getting work done, it seemed. And can I get you to pull that microphone a little closer? It seems like there was a plethora of people going through this job before you got it. 
And what do you think your key to success was in getting stability here on Bainbridge Island in the city manager position? Uh, I, I think one of the one of the attributes I, I bring um, or characteristics, I guess I'd say, is um, a calmness. Um, you know, I, I try to approach issues and problems from from a perspective of um, solving them, solution oriented, non emotional, um, non emotional, and and I, I think that approach helps people to feel like okay. It, if we make a mistake, it's okay. We're going to learn from it. We're going to improve. It's when you make the mistake repeatedly that it becomes a problem. Yeah, changing those habits and such. Um, I want to just kind of riff on all these things that are going through my head and what your job is. And uh, by the way, how long are you in capacity of this job here on the island? Uh, my, my last day will be September 21st. Okay. So I've got about four weeks left. You got big plans for those four weeks? Uh, just continue to do what I've been doing, wrap things up, or at least package them in a way that they can be moved on to um, the other staff, other members of the management team, and whoever uh, is selected by the council to fill in after I leave. Now, so the city council will elect the next city manager? Is that how that works? Yeah, the city council will... Um, They'll go through some type of process that hasn't been decided yet, but it is their responsibility to appoint the city manager. Yeah, I got pretty low IQ when it comes IQ when it comes to um, politics. Can you explain to me, and maybe somebody else has the same question, the difference of having a city manager versus a mayor versus these other systems that other cities have? Do we have two mayors? Is that correct? Well, we split. We have a mayor, and then there's a deputy mayor. That is basically if the mayor isn't available, the deputy mayor is the next next person on the council that will step in and fill in those duties, whether it's you know a chairing a meeting or filling in at um, a community event of some type where the mayor is there to represent the city. Was there a period of time when Bainbridge Island didn't have a mayor system? Um, well, the Prior to 2009, the city had a strong, what's referred to as a strong mayor form of government, where the mayor serves not only as the chief elected official, but also the chief executive officer of the city. Um, in the council manager form, which I often like to refer to it as the strong council form, the council shares equal authority on the legislative level. And the executive branch of government is the responsibility of the city manager who is appointed by the city council. Okay. So you're in charge of the city employees, but not necessarily the council. Is right. That, I'm reading that right? That's correct. I, I'm responsible for the day-to-day operations of the city, the service delivery. The council is responsible for policy making and legislative decision making. And are you the one that follows through with that um, on the backside? Yes. Once the council makes a decision, um, says we're going to go go to the left, my job is to make sure everybody goes to the left. Okay. So it's not you telling the council what to do. It's the council bringing up these proposals and ideas and voting upon them on behalf of the residents of the island? That's absolutely correct. I do not direct the city council. Ding, ding. I got one right. 
Time to stop. Um, 110 employees? Yeah, about 110. And that's uh, city planning, um, fire, police? Uh, not fire. It's it's planning, it's engineering, public works operation and maintenance, finance, administration. Did I say police? Um, oh, so, so, so police fall under that umbrella? Fire and parks and recreation are separate districts. Uh, the city council, city manager has no authority over those organizations. They have separate elected officials that, that are responsible for um, the decision-making, budgeting, uh, with those organizations. And about how much money does it take to run a city? Well, it depends on the size and the services provided. For Bainbridge Island, it, the uh, the total budget is is it ranges between thirty five and forty million dollars. About fourteen million of that is the general fund or operations of the city, the the ongoing service delivery. And how much of that money comes from property taxes and stuff? Actually, a small percentage. Small. Um, if yeah, for a homeowner, if they want to figure out how much of their tax dollars go to the city as opposed to the school district or the state for general school distribution, the fire district, park district, um, the city's portion is about eight cents of every dollar. So, yeah, divide your property tax bill by that, and and you'll usually it's about. Um, Oh, I think it's roughly, on average now, $600 per year is what the average homeowner on Bainbridge Island contributes to the city. With uh, property tax really taking a hike up this last time around, how do you see it shaping up on the island? Do you think it's going to level back out and come back to some normalcy, or is it going to continue to climb in your eyes? Well, I, I think one of the you know the biggest factor that we've seen um, affecting property tax this this past year was the state legislative decision related to school funding. Um, that that had a tremendous impact. Over the next few years, my understanding from um, Dr. Ben Knudsen at the school district is that the um, the property tax will will slowly uh, decline a little bit. But we also have uh, voter approved levies that have a significant impact. The the fire bonds that were passed in 2015, the park district bonds that were passed in 2015. Um, there's constant um, renewal levy for the school district that, you know, that's kind of a baseline that, that will be there. Um, and then we've got on the ballot this November, the non-motorized um, connecting Bainbridge levy that voters will, will be asked to uh, consider. So, What is that specifically? I know that there was the bridge to connect uh, Nectal and that shopping mm-hmm. area from the STO trail. Um, and that got voted down and we lost that grant money. Um, is that any part of this um, new future going forward or is that dead in the water for good? That is dead in the water for now. And I would, I would expect at some point in the future, just because of the growth and development that's going to occur on the island, um, you know, whether it's five years, 10 years, that issue will resurface. But for now, it's, it's dead. Um, this ballot levy has nothing to do with that bridge. Um, what does it have it, to do with it? It has to do with shoulder widening, 
safe routes to schools. There will be um, a broad community participation. Hopefully, we'll get broad participation. But there will be several opportunities for community members, if this ballot measure passes, to actually come in and um, participate in workshops to talk about the projects that have been identified as possible projects and prioritize those projects, look at opportunities for maybe different projects, um, and, and sort out how that funding should be used. So we're not, we've got a list of example projects that have been worked on for many years. Uh, they're part of the island-wide transportation plan. Uh, they're part of our capital improvement plan. Our non-motorized advisory committee has been working on that for many, many years. But the broad community hasn't had as much opportunity to put their fingerprints on it as we'd like. So but recently the community was asked to be a part of that task force, correct? Correct. And some good ideas come out of that? Oh, yeah. We, we had um, – and, and that's one of the things I've really appreciated about Bainbridge Island is that when community members are asked to participate, whether it's an advisory committee, a task force, um, the amount of talent – and the willingness of people to step forward has just—it's it, been overwhelming. Um, we have—we have benefited so much as a community from the expertise expertise of individuals in the community that it—it's just amazing. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Yeah, um, the widening of roads and sidewalks and bike lanes—that's something that's really in the forefront of my mind because I live in Central Winslow, and my son is walking or biking to school all the time. And, you know, we had a horrible, horrible tragedy tragedy of some joggers being hit by a young kid that just graduated. And that brought awareness to the false sense of security that we're uh, a non-motorized, um, friendly island with bicycles and walking and stuff. There's really limited shoulders in places, specifically there on Finch where these guys got hit. Um, Miller Road between the two Grand Forests is really tight. I know there's a plan to get started on Miller um, right now. But how, how do you feel it's shaping up with the false sense of security where there's really not a protective area on a lot of these mainly used uh, paths that protect bicyclists and walkers? And sometimes there's the white line and it's crumbling and then that's it. And it's difficult. I mean, if that's your mailbox and you're going out there to the road and, you know, we think of ourselves as a rural, undeveloped type island, um, how, do, how do we get past this and get this into not just a false sense of security in doing the chilly hilly and all the bicycle community and the squeaky wheels and the STO and, and just kids walking to school and uh, coming around the island? How do, you, how do you see that shaping up? Yeah, I think that's a real dilemma for the community and, and something that uh, broad community discussion just has to happen for people to to understand that we're not just talking about the hardcore commuter bicyclists using the system. We are talking about multimodal, multi-use, multi-age, and you can't expect a family to take their kids out bicycling on some of the on, on hardly any of the roads on the island uh, even by you know we can take we can take some incremental steps by reducing speed limits by adding wider shoulders um, 
but we really have to take a look at the broader system and you know how how are we going to build the system in or on an island that that is rural in character in many parts of it uh, and we want to retain that that's that's a, a value of this community is is to retain that rural character so they're they're competing interests definitely and the community is somehow going to have to wrap their arms around it and and figure out what that system looks like um, public safety is is one of the primary responsibilities of local government and uh, that doesn't just mean the police department out keeping everyone safe yeah i mean even the crosswalks some of them aren't really marked very well on the island and a couple people have been hit in crosswalks and let's get on some subjects here about specific parts of the island um, can you tell me the latest on Suzuki and Sakai properties and how they've shaped up over your term? Okay. Yeah, the Suzuki property, um, you know, the council gave the go-ahead for some of the preliminary work, what we, what we call entitlement work. Uh, that's this, all the studies and tests that have to be done to determine how a property should be developed. Um, you know, look, looking at um, where the roads will go, Looking at you know we, we've we've done a pretty good job with Suzuki as far as identifying the um, the wetlands and the aquifer recharge area the um, the valuable trees that that we want to retain on the property um, but this is all the work that that would typically be done by any private developer to move a project from concept to um, the permit phase where um, an application for, for permit can be submitted and then reviewed. So that work has launched. Um, Olympic Property Group is, is the um, uh, company that we've selected to help us through that process. We're trying to keep an uh, – it's a unique situation because the city isn't typically in the development property development business. And – what we do and what, what our staff is good at is reviewing permit applications. So we're trying to separate those responsibilities and have a third party doing the actual uh, application process so that when it's submitted, city staff haven't been involved in that and can review it objectively. So is Olympic Property a neutral group that would do the data and the science for everybody to see? Yes, that all of the all of the documentation that uh, Olympic Property Group, all the studies they prepare, will will be public information. Um, so I want to put a little pin in the aquifers and and trees and get back to that. Um, the Sakai property is is kind of opened up a bit now, and there's some trails, correct? Yes. Um, is that what's the future of that property? Well, the Sakai property is actually park district, so the city really doesn't have much of a role in that uh, except again through the um, application review the regulatory process um, is there anything you'd like to see happen with that piece of property well I you know one of the one of the primary reasons that the park district was interested in that property uh, and and had community support was to provide not only green space but park space within the Winslow area uh, Waterfront Park was at the time the only park in within walking distance for Winslow. Um, 
Yeah, we we now have Gideon the, Park. Yeah, well, Gideon Park. We have uh, Mortani that that recently oh, was nice, opened. Nice trail by the old In Eagle Harbor Cannery area. Yes, yeah, that trail turned out awesome. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, very generous offer by community members. So we, let's let's throw land trust in into this conversation. Um, so you got Parks and Rec looking for property. You got the city looking for property a little bit. Land trusts looking for property. We have a critical ordinance out there that we want to keep. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm often wrong and I don't fact check everything. Just trying to have conversations with the people. I think there's about 70% of the island is rural and undeveloped. But yet we see a lot of clear cutting. You know, I'm sure it was in a process long before this ordinance came in. But there's discussions on trees, aquifers, clear cutting agricultural property, um, government and private nonprofit institutions holding land, and then there's the land own, landowners that are kind of limited now in their ability to develop or maintain forests or, or um, trees. I think there's a $25,000 fine for cutting down a tree. Um, you need an arborist. You need this, that, and the other. With all these different entities competing for land on the island, what would you like to see happen? Well, I, I, I don't know that uh, necessarily what I, what I care to see happen makes a whole lot of difference at this point. Right. Uh, Your but, personal opinion, you've been here long enough to enjoy certain things sure. and, and see growth go in one direction and then another. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there's always a balance that local government has to try to achieve between property rights and preservation. And in this community, um, because of organizations like the Land Trust and and the city, when it when uh, the city of Bainbridge Island first um, annexed all of the island and, and incorporated, um, working with the Land Trust, the city floated a bond issue. And w- through that, the community purchased a lot of land that will be in a preservation status in perpetuity. Those kinds of actions by local government, by the community, um, they benefit generations upon generations. So this island has done a great job of making sure that a good portion of the island is preserved today and for future generations. So when you talk about preservation through the land trust, is that indefinite, or is it? Is there any truth or merit to the conversation that land trust obtains certain amounts of land and sells it out to perhaps developers to make a profit to obtain bigger parcels of land, and that I may donate a small portion of land to the land trust in that ilk of preserving it, you know, for generations to come. And they turn around and have the ability to sell that to make a profit to buy other land that's more advantageous to preserve. Uh, it depends on how the agreements are are set up and how the land the pres- the tools that are used to put the land in a preservation status. There, there typically can be a way to take land out of a preservation status, but it's very expensive, um, especially if the land has has been off the tax rolls or reduced tax rolls for a long period of time because the 
in order to take it off, you would have to pay all those back taxes. And that, you know, that adds up pretty quickly. And all of a sudden you end up with a property that costs way more to pull it out of preservation status than any gain that could be received from development. So um, I'm not saying it can't happen. Uh, It does happen, but um, I don't see that being something that, that Islanders should fear in the future. When it comes to the value of a tree, it seems there's a wide scope there. Um, like like I said, if I cut down a tree on my own property, I'm subject to a $25,000 fine. If I want to remove a diseased tree, I need to have an arborist come in and confirm that and pay for that. Then I have to be told what kind of um, native tree goes to replace it in my yard. And it seems like there's a strong grip of government um, regulation in in trees on my personal property, there's an outcry of old growth and, and clear cutting that it seems like there's not really any old growth on this island. So that term kind of gets misused in my mind. Um, but being the bystander, I don't have an opinion. Um, and then there's the, the famous Madrona tree that uh, seems to be a controversy and not quite up to the the size or regulations that that we're having this controversy about. I just you know walked around on sands. I saw that clear cut, and that was under agricultural um, umbrella. But it was just like a whole field of trees just plowed down and and grinded down. Kind of reminded me of Brazil rainforest, where these trees are just gone. You know, they're into dust in a matter of. I don't know how long it took. I was just, and you know, we, we'd look at the STO when that came up. It seemed like everybody's like, "Oh my God, how many trees did they cut down?" You know, and you look at it now, and it, it's it's growing back, and it, it's it's a beautiful spot. And maybe you're not thinking about those trees anymore. But with all this, you know, the plight of a tree, I guess. You know, what is the value of a tree? Can can I just come in and say it's agricultural and cut it down and uh, buzz it into bark? Or is it this thing that I have to preserve and I can't widen the road here because we think this is close to old growth? Um, can you elaborate on it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, one, one of the things I'd like to clarify is the uh, what, what we've been referring to as landmark tree or legacy tree ordinance um, from the very beginning was intended to be a stopgap. The planning commission, like a temporary injunction. Te- temporary injunction. Um, the planning commission and uh, what we call the tree committee has been working on updating tree regulations for quite some time. And all of a sudden, we started hearing about some of these trees that were going to be coming down. And I was asked by the the mayor and a council member if we could do something quickly as a stopgap measure until this ordinance working its way through the process was in place so that we didn't lose what what we've referred to as legacy trees. That ordinance is likely to be rescinded uh, in about two weeks, I believe it is, and replaced with, with a more permanent ordinance that uh, isn't quite as onerous. But the idea is still to to protect trees, to preserve uh, trees on the island. And that is a, that's a policy direction the current city council 
uh, has made a priority. And it's, I would have to say, it's a comment I hear frequently from a vocal group of community members. Uh, but touching on on that, and it's something that I, I throughout my career I've, I've experienced, is that, um, you know, we're a community of 25,000 people. If the council chambers is filled, every seat, that represents less than 1% of the island. But yet that room full of people speaks very loudly and very influentially to the city council every time. Yeah, well said. You know, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I think of trees, and, and my kid talks about trees and unleaded water in the schools and a couple, couple environmental issues. Um, you know, there's a message that homeowners need to preserve these trees or landowners and then there's the critical ordinance that says that, you know, we have to stop the development and the cutting down of trees. But as an average citizen, I look at Sands, I look at Madison Avenue where we're taking uh, inner city growth um, and density there. And um, over on Wing Point there, there's, there's some more um, trees coming down. I see trees getting chopped down all over the island right now, and it's really in the forefront of my mind. So there's one thing in my ear, and then there's another thing in my sight. Um, how do how do we get around being a citizen who's limited in participation in city council meetings? Understanding what's going on when we hear this, the city government and council saying that we have to protect these trees, but then you yet we see these bulldozers bulldozing trees all over. Mm-hmm. What what can we tell the people? about that in a positive light that says, okay, this is, this is a temporary situation. We have this law in place. It's a stopgap. Um, we want to go back to look at the science of the aquifers and the environment. This week's been hellacious for air quality. And the thing I think I enjoy about Bainbridge Island the most is the air quality, mm-hmm. you know, having that ocean air and the ability to breathe and be mindful. And it's a little different, you know, you see the smog, you know what's going on in L.A. and Beijing now and Minnesota, and you see these trees lying on the ground. Um, what, what can we say to the average folk? Sure. I, I think the main, main thing that I could say is the way the development process works and the permitting process works, when, once an application has been deemed complete – the developer, the applicant, has vested rights to the regulations that are in place at that time. From the period that the application is deemed complete to the actual issuance of a permit can be months, if not a couple years in in some cases, depending on the back and forth that a developer goes through modifications of their plans, resubmittals. So... What, what's happening today as far as tree removal may have been something that was submitted as a complete application two years ago. So the regulations are catching up to what has been happening. Uh, and that's part of the... Is there the, any possibility to revise or stop those permits that were once pushed out and approved? Legally, there is not. That, that is a legal vested right that um, an applicant or property owner has. So do you feel that was 
that's on the previous city council or in your term? What what deemed that a good idea at one point and now it's not a good idea? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to point fingers at any any um, past or current or you know, yeah, this isn't previous a council. But I, I think, you know, it's important. One, one of the first things that happened uh, after I became city manager here is we had a visitor at City Hall from Ohio. And they came in to talk with me and the planning director at the time about a development they wanted to put at High School Road in 305 called the Visconzi Development. That's uh, Walgreens. And- That's Wal- Walgreens, now the Virginia Mason Building. Um, you know, that that parcel used to be heavily wooded. Yeah, for sure. Um, that parcel also had been zoned. Commercially. Commercially. Long before the city of Bainbridge Island even had that as part of the city. So there are a number of things that, that could have happened to get a different result. Like a girl up in a tree and another one <laughs> tied to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, it, you know, the, the current um, process that's going on right now, the island center sub-area plan, if something like that had been done for what is now the Visconzi property, we could have ended up with a completely different result there. So I guess that's my, that's my plug for the community to get involved in things like the island center sub-area plan. There will be another process coming up for Linwood Center at some point, also for Rolling Bay at some point. It's really important for the community to participate in those processes because that's what helps the community influence what happens in development in the future. So when and where and how and why and all that, how do people get information about council meetings, um, opportunities to speak with their council members, uh, office hours, uh, perhaps town meetings, stuff like that. Where, is there a hub of information? Well, the city website, uh, we, we try to put everything that we can on the website. Uh, usually on the homepage, you can, you can see a calendar and find out what's happening. Uh, there are links to council agendas, um, Occasionally, we we will do um, advertisements in in the local newspapers. Uh, the city manager's report is is usually something that we try to. You do that pretty regularly, right? That's something I've tried to do every Friday. That's um, outstanding. Good on you. It's, um, it's something I started early in my career, and and it I've just carried it with me in every city I've been in. That's good transparency and a good way to uh, connect with people. It's yeah. it's written word. You can sit, sit there and look at it and look at it and look at it. How, do you, how do you feel about having a city podcast? I think it would be great. Um, the The biggest challenge we have um, is, is really just getting people away from the day-to-day grind and work that they do to actually come sit down and talk with someone. Um, I mentioned before we started this discussion that I'd done a city podcast for, for city employees and, uh, it's not, it's not real hard to do. You just have to carve out the time to do it. And, um, it shouldn't necessarily always be the city manager or the communications coordinator that does that. It'd be nice to get, uh, different department directors or staff people to come in and talk, 
elected officials to come in and talk. Yeah, and citizens, uh, too, that may have an outstanding idea absolutely. that they'd like to express that perhaps they couldn't do it in a written format or come up to a chamber meeting. I know I, I enjoy watching the chamber meetings online a little bit. Sometimes they're arduous, but <laughs> I know <laughs> I don't have time with my son's after-school activities mm-hmm. to fit that in. I want to be a good steward of this land and be a participant. But like you say, finding time for it is the real difficulty. Right. And that's that's why you know, we, we've really tried to focus on different types of media, uh, whether it's you know, the, the written uh, reports or you know, we're talking about sending out a, a news bulletin to every home on the island once a month. Um, that may work great for some people. Other people being able to put some headphones on and listen to a podcast is going to work better for them. Uh, social media might work better for someone else. So we're trying to trying to cover as many different types of media as we can to to reach as many people as we can. Well, I appreciate you being a listener of this podcast, and uh, I appreciate you coming on to talk some things. Uh, that's surprising that you reached out and said, "Hey, I listen." So I was happy to hear that. Um, let's get back to some more. Um, points here. The Winslow upgrade went on during your watch where it was kind of shut down and the merchants were a little upset and we redid the parking and the sidewalks downtown. I don't hear anybody complaining anymore. Um, I see the waterfront, you know, people couldn't get their boats down there for a little bit. And now I see these trails and these parks that um, are really an upgrade. Um, How do you feel that section of downtown is has developed since you've been here. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could take credit for that, but that that all happened before I arrived. Um, I think they actually finished up the the uh, construction project in September of 2012. I started in November, so I, I can't take any of the credit for that. The Winslow Way upgrade, um, but I, I think you know. Well, we frequently get phone calls and requests. to to give tours to different groups, whether it's uh, graduate students. Uh, We've had, on two occasions, we've had groups from um, Hawaii, government officials from Hawaii come over and tour the island. In in particular, looking at the downtown area, um, and they, they view it as one of the most walkable downtowns, pedestrian friendly downtowns in the country. Yeah, I was looking at my Zillow score, and it was like less than nine or whatever, and I'm centered between the aquatic center, the library, the grocery store, and all my kids' schools, and we walk to everything all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why it's not a perfect 10. Yeah, we, we have a um, gentleman by the name of Dan Burden. He, um, he's an author, uh, speaker on walkable communities, and he— That's a, that's a job? Yeah, yeah, great I am job. A speaker of walkable communities. He he, he walk he goes around the country and advises cities about how to create walkable downtowns and uses Bainbridge Island as an example. Yeah, I I saw that you started a, a city manager Facebook page too, uh, as one of your media outlets. Right. Do you get a lot of trolls and complaints on that, or are people? Because I know there's a site called Bainbridge Islanders on Facebook that just it's a show. <laughs> you can put the first word of your choice in front of that. Yeah. Um, how's that gone? And is there 
certain media outlets that seem to work better for engagement and involvement of the community? Yeah, usually um, the the way the Facebook page is set up, uh, it's not really intended to be back and forth interactive. It's it's really intended to, I won't say entirely one-way communication, but that's kind of the approach we've taken is, is to put information out and not get not engage in haters conversation yeah and you know usually those kinds of conversations where you have someone that's upset about something in my experience it's it's usually most effective to handle those situations one-on-one uh face-to-face uh People tend to be less emotional when it's face to face and and more civil. <laughs> yeah, I've ran into a couple of people that just bark up and down on online, and you're like, "Wow, this guy has so much anger, pain, hate, whatever you want to call it." And then you meet them, and they're completely normal and fine and <laughs> kind, and you know everything that you would expect. Yeah. Um, aquifers. This critical ordinance came out. There was an aquifer study, but it seemed like the science was not quite behind that, that put that ordinance in place. How do you see the aquifer situation on Bainbridge Island? Um, fact, fact check me anytime you want, because sure. I don't. But uh, aquifer seems to be a, a really hot topic around here. It, it is, and I think there, um, there's certainly a fair amount of misinformation about the aquifers and about the future of water availability on the island. Uh, I think one of the things people frequently misunderstand or don't uh, don't understand is the aquifer system in, in and of itself. It's not like there's this cone of water under the island and we're slowly draining it. It's not a well. It's yeah, it's not a well. It's it's a series of underground lakes and the aquifers that serve Bainbridge Island extend as far south as Port Orchard. They extend east to the peninsula. Um, so when we talk about, well, we can't, we can't have growth and development occur on the island because of the aquifer. Well, if it doesn't occur on the island, it's going to Port Orchard. It's going to Kitsap County Peninsula. It's drawing on the same aquifer, and we we just can't turn off the spigot over in Seattle and and say we're not going to accept any more growth in the region. It's coming to the region, so it's a regional issue. Uh, there are steps that can be taken to conserve water, to make sure that the aquifer is recharging, uh, to, to continue monitoring. We, we have a pretty extensive monitoring system in place. So, you know, we'll have early warning signs. And at this point, the monitoring we've done don't suggest there's any great concern regarding future water availability. Who's the eyes on the aquifers? Excuse me? Who's the eyes on the aquifers? The eyes. Who is? Well, they're certainly the, the city city staff um we is there an aquifer expert is that a title is that a thing we we have had an employee Uh, we have a position now it's the position's vacant because the employee in that position left for another job with the city of bremerton uh 
um, and a lot of her job was was to view those re- review those reports and um, make recommendations. We also have a citizen group. It's the Environmental Technical Advisory Committee. It's a group. The that group is made up of uh, community members who have science backgrounds. Uh, there are hydrologists on that committee. We also have um, another water purveyor on the island, Kitsap Public Utility District. They are also monitoring water availability, monitoring the aquifers. So there are a lot of a lot of eyeballs on on what's happening with our aquifers. Glad to hear. Um, you mentioned Bremerton there. That brings me to another kind of water um, conversation in. In sewage, you know, there's recently a naval spill in Bremerton, and there is the three guys here on the island that run the sewage thing that just won an award for the fourth year in a row for mm-hmm. uh, managing that so well. As we go forward, and we have different changes in the season, and then we have the, this capacity of growth on the island, how do you see our sewage situation shaping up for the future? Because it seems like it, it's doing well, but it's also had its missteps. And there's a little bit of alarm based on, you know, drinkable water, the pollutants in the sound. Um, and let's put a pin on the pollutants in the sound and get back to that. But how do you see it? Okay. Well, um, as you say, currently we're in a great position. Um, six years ago when I started – uh, I think the first year and, and the year after that, so 2012-2013, we had two significant spills. I think one was like 400,000 gallons and the other was just under 100,000 gallons, if I remember correctly. Those were direct, directly related to a failing sewer main in, along the beach in Eagle Harbor by Holly Cove. We corrected that. Uh, the city spent, I think it was around $4 million to, to fix that sewer main. And uh, since then, we, we haven't had any spills. Our plant operators, uh, I can't say enough positive things about them. They, they care so much about the work they're doing. Um, and they've really taken some initiative, some ownership in how the plant is operated how efficient it operates, um, making sure that uh, steps are taken today to make sure we have capacity in the future. So they do a great job. Is it stress based on rain levels of the seasons? Sure, it is. Um, you know, ideally you'd like to have a system that that is tight enough that doesn't allow infiltration of rainwater, stormwater, um, but in our climate, that's really difficult to do. So what, so, what has Kobe and that's city of Bainbridge Island, because I don't like using acronyms, um, but I will in this case. Kobe always flushes these mains. What is that process? What does that do for us? Well, so the the sewer mains are actually vectored um, rather than rather than flushed. I'm oh, sorry, I don't know water, what water ma- means. What is that? That's a great big truck that makes a whole lot of noise. Uh, like and gutter it suckers. has a high high suction vacuum, and it yeah, it'll it'll clean out the gutters. It'll clean out the sewer system. Um, 
Why do we flush it so often? Well, it's a, no, a number of reasons. One is is to make sure that the buildup inside is is cleaned out so that it flows properly. Uh, we don't have backups. Uh, with the water system, um, you you flush that on a regular basis just to get the sediment out. Uh, Where's that water go? Well, with with the vector truck, usually what what will happen is they'll take that to the water treatment plant and they'll take the liquid out. Um, and then once they get down to the, the remaining solids, we have what we call a decant facility. That material is taken to the decant facility where it, it dries out and then it's hauled away as a... Um, Where's that at? That is at the Vincent Road okay, by property. The, by the storage unit there? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, doing well here. The environment and uh, the sound. Could the ferry system use a different type of fuel or filter to have less damage to the sound specifically between Seattle and Bainbridge? Well, that that's a, a question really for the, the ferry system. But the good news is they are moving toward uh, hybrid electric ferries. Uh, I think the first, um, first conversion is supposed to happen in 2020 or 2021, if I remember correctly. So we're already talking about that with, with Washington State Ferries and Puget Sound Energy. Because that conversion is going to require charging. And we have concerns about electric capacity here on the island and reliability. So if we have ferries needing to be charged on the island at the maintenance facility, we have to make sure PSE has the ability to, to make that happen without impacting adversely impacting the rest of the island. Yeah, something I never even gave thought. I look at the uh, ferry terminal, and on the left, if I'm facing Seattle, Sahali Cove, mm-hmm. sewage dumped out there. Ferry, numerous trips back and forth, fuel being exposed in that same cove. On the right, there's Pritchard Park and Creosote Park, and there was all kinds of pollutants in Creosote. I look at the shellfish having plastics in them, um, Remnants of sewage, like the opiates and and such, and then I look at the, the the clams and the crabs and the oysters that used to be there, and it's just a lot of that sea life is just washing up dead. We recently had the J Pod orca have a calf that died that she carried around for a long time. Are we really, as as a society, really mucking it up on that section of the island? Is it is that stuff really is that water super scary, or are we going at a f- fast enough pace to clean that? Because it seems I've been here for a long time, and it seems like that Creosote Park has been closed, and they've been working on that since I've been here, and long before. And then Halley Cove, I love the little trail and walking down there, and then Pritchard Park with all the dogs and uh, a lot of kids flying their drones and having good, good time there. There's a big section of a beach. Um, I like walking dogs over there at Creosote, but I'd never let my dog jump in that water right there. Mm-hmm. Um, are we doing enough to protect that? Well, uh, um, I don't think we're doing it fast enough. 
and you know the you mentioned the the old creosote plant um you know that that property is is a super fun site it's it's under a cleanup plan with the EPA and the Department of Ecology we just recently received word this past year that that they are funded and they're going to be moving forward with cleanup of that site on another plan, a different plan that hopefully will work this time. What's going on right now? So they are, um, they're, they're doing some work on the retaining wall. They, the retaining wall around that site was failing. It's a sheet pile wall, so it's corroding and rusting away. Uh, they're actually going to uh, pour a concrete wall on the outside of that so that it stops stop leaching the creosote, holds the property where it's at. They're also re, um, resurfacing some of the cap under the water in the harbor that uh, has been exposed just because of currents and ferry traffic, the prop wash. Uh, so all that is being recapped, I guess the best way to describe it. And then they will they will be coming in and doing the, the cleanup process of the actual land. And uh, it's going to be an interesting process. They are, the, the proposal that they've come up with or the action they've come up with is that they're going to be bringing these massive augers and they'll drill into the soil and then they'll fill those holes with a slurry that will encapsulate the soil. And slurry. It's kind of a concrete mixture, um, a little more liquid than, than your typical concrete pour would be. And they mix all that up with the soil, and that'll encapsulate it in these, I think they're like eight-foot diameter holes. And that's how... That's how the site is going to be stabilized or, or cleaned up. When did they shut down creosote and start technically cleaning it up? Yeah, I don't, I don't recall it's off the top of my head. It's got to be 10 years, right? Oh, yeah, I think it's, it's been probably closer to 20. So that is slow in my book. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just forgot to mention the waterfront park. You know, we've developed that as well, and that's on the other side of the ferry maintenance section and then the new pillars came in on the docks down there at the mm-hmm. waterfront yep um the, you know, the things look pretty on the outside but i'm worried about the water on the inside yeah and and one of the things we did in waterfront park um you know it, it looks like a water feature and the purpose of that was not only to to do a better job of cleaning stormwater stormwater runoff coming off of winslow way but also to show the public, park users, how stormwater comes off the streets and goes into the sound and through, you know, what what can be kind of a, a natural filtration system with the swale and some of the uh, vegetation that that's in in that swale to help clean the water before it gets to the sound. Um, yeah, we all we also want to talk about and in terms of water quality in the sound is the effluent coming from the water treatment plant. Um, you know, once, once the water, the, the sewage is treated in our plant, it's actually released through a pipe back into the sound. 
one of the things that doesn't occur is removal of pharmaceuticals. And that's becoming a topic you hear more and more about. Ideally, we want to figure out how, how to treat that. But we also want to look at how, how can we reuse that water, get it to a point where it's clean enough that we can use it to recharge our aquifers or use purple pipe to maybe irrigate a golf course. Or, what is purple pipe? Is that a Jimi Hendrix foundation? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, a, a purple pipe is, is basically reclaimed um, gray water that, that has been treated to a point where it can be reapplied to, for certain uses. Not drinkable water, but um, irrigation for um, flowers, non-edibles. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's take a quick break and uh, lighten this up a little bit. I got a little segment called the Fast Five. Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five. I'm going to ask you five questions and you give me answers fast as you can. Best place for coffee on the island. Oh, uh, Blackbird. Best meal you've had on the island? Hitchcock, uh, chef's choice. Nice. What, what do he make for you that night? Oh, it, it's been a while. Um, I, the one thing I remember is the bone marrow. That, that was absolutely awesome. Um, and we, we had uh, family from Mexico. Uh, in town so we treated them to to the chef's dinner and it it was just it was an amazing meal but also you know with family it made it even more special yeah family's awesome um favorite event on Bainbridge Island uh it's got to be the Grand Old Fourth yeah I like the street dance with the kids the night before but Grand Old Fourth is I'm, right I'm getting up there. too old for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um favorite superhero Favorite super Captain America. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it is. <laughs> um, favorite park or trail on Bainbridge Island? Uh, Gasm Lake. I don't like the mosquitoes there, but yeah, yeah. it's a nice wide trail, and I, I enjoy that a lot. And being, I, being from Minnesota, I like the pond. Yeah, I found some other pond on the uh, south end recently. I don't know what it was called, but. It was down there by Blakely Harbor on a, on a road prior to that. Well, thank you for the Fast Five. Um, we have another local uh, politician here in Jay Inslee. What do, have you dealt with him, and how do you feel he's doing uh, on these environmental issues that are relative to the island? I, I haven't actually had the opportunity to you know, work, work directly with Governor Inslee. Um, I've been imp- really impressed with his focus on environmental issues, um, and uh, being apolitical, I probably should stop there. <laughs> okay, um, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> do you think he uh, would run for office as president? You know, I, that that thought has crossed my mind that that you know that may be something he uh, he entertains or has been entertaining. Um, It'd be great for the state of Washington. Yeah. Guy pulled to get him on the show? I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, the gooey duck industry and the, the China trade embargoes, um, how do you think that'll impact the state? Well, you know, obviously it's, it's a, a big industry for the state. The, the entire shellfish industry is, is huge for Washington State. Um, and yeah, I haven't, haven't really followed it close enough to, to know the, the, the real impacts of, you know, specifically what the, the gooey duck trade will, how, how that will be impacted. But, um, yeah, I know that's a big market, uh, especially for the Suquamish tribe. Uh, so, uh, hopefully we can make some progress there and, and not have it damage the, the economy too much. Um, what is good about the job that you do? What is something that you look forward to on a daily basis being the city manager? I get to work with people every day and every day can be different. Um, I'm, I'm not the type of person that can sit down and crunch numbers all day. Although some days that's part of what I do. Um, it, I can start out a morning attending a chamber of commerce meeting, uh, doing a podcast, uh, talking with a reporter uh, to the next hour, maybe working with one of the department heads on a project, um, going out and meeting with community members. Uh, next hour might be talking with a council member about an issue, uh, reviewing agenda bills, dealing with legal issues. Every, every day is just a, a multitude of, of different issues and projects. Yeah, you don't have the same job repeat itself every day, do you? Not at all. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking time to come into the podcast. What is something about the job that is is bad? Like, it, I know certain things, this island is small, so you must have to walk into the store at some point and run into somebody, and they take up your time immediately. Like, Doug, I need to tell you this. Or, mm -hmm. you know, you make small talk and be surface level with a lot of people and wind up, you know, taking portions of your day away from your your family and stuff. Is that a is that the bad side of the job? Or is there something else that um, becomes difficult? Is there, like, personal attacks online? Anything that really bothers you about it? Yeah, I, I would say the, the community in general is um, – very respectful in terms of you know, if I'm out for dinner or uh, doing something in the evening when I'm technically not not you know not during business hours. Um, being a city manager, you you really never you know take that hat off. You're always the city manager, so it's a very public life. See, that's what's great about being Captain America. Everybody knows you're on the job when you got your costume on. Right. But once you take that off, you know, nobody yeah. recognizes you. Exactly. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I would say that's, that's probably not a, you know, part of the job I would say is a negative part of it. Uh, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is, um, a lot of the job is dealing with complaints. People want things fixed or they're unhappy about something. And when, when that happens day after day, it's negative, right? It, it, yeah, you you really have to make sure you you reset your attitude and uh, don't let that constant 
need for change and fixing negative experiences um, cloud your vision. What are some of the things that allow you to do that? Like, do you just have to take a deep breath before you answer? <laughs> do you do yoga? Are you mindful in some capacity? You know, um, yeah, there. What are the tools? I need them. Yeah, there are a number of different things that I've found uh, to be helpful. Um, when I really get to the point where you know, I've, I've had it up to my eyeballs, um, I'll, I'll sit down and you know, write a nasty email and then delete it. That is very therapeutic for me. Did you ever hit send accidentally? Because <laughs> I have. Um, not, not that I know of. I've, I've edited a few and then sent them, but um, for me, that's uh, that's kind of a release. Um, that's a healthy process. Yeah, it, it you know it doesn't really unless unless you accidentally send it. You know, yeah, it doesn't hurt anyone. <laughs> Go into empty empty room and scream. And yeah, come out calm. Getting up, going for a walk. Um, Finding humor is something that uh, you know, is really important, uh, and I, I try to do that around City Hall. Um, you know, I I need to make sure that people view me in a certain way at City Hall, but I also want to make make sure people understand that I have a lighter side, and and I can I can joke around and have fun in an appropriate way with staff. Yeah, I I often say to myself, and I think I've said it here too. You know, I want to be fallible on this podcast. You know, I want to make mistakes and I want to grow from it and have this be uh, an adventure on becoming more intelligent, more aware, um, communicate. You know, I feel like for, and still to a lesser degree now, I'm a horrible communicator and don't really like people. So I thought I'd turn to my fears and, and start communicating and opening up to more people. But it was on a condition that I had to be myself. Yeah. And humor is a huge part of that. And it's good to hear that that's one of your coping mechanisms, too. I mean, I, I, I used to drive all the time and move to the island. It became very walkable, like I was talking about earlier. And now I'm commuting to take my kid off island for um, extracurricular activities. And I have to drive. And it's not a short drive. And I found that if I just think about putting my head on the headrest in the back making sure I have good posture and breathe in six deep breaths before I turn the key on, I can deal with it. But there, that's my mechanism of coping. But if I don't do that, you know, I'm dropping the F-bomb to every driver, you know, <laughs> and I hate it or strongly dislike it because I don't use the word hate in my house. But now we're in my studio. Hey, bef before we get out of here, um, banning California. That is SoCal to the T. It is. It is close to the border you're going from close to canada to close to mexico mm -hmm. out past long beach that's how did you find that position and get interested in it so uh the international city management association sends a newsletter out on a weekly basis is that like linkedin for city managers um yeah kind of i guess <laughs> um it usually has uh you know topics that are relevant, uh, current issues. And then there's also a, a job notice section. And uh, I, I had kind of been keeping my eye open for jobs in Southern California. Um, I have a son that lives in San Diego. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> banning popped up. And I started to look at it and you know, things weren't 
quite the way I hoped they'd they'd be here on the island for me. So I started doing some more research about banning, and um, it opened my eyes for sure. Um, anyone that's uh, you know done a Google search about banning California, some of the stuff that pops up is is not very uh, not very favorable toward the local government. Um, so you got some challenges. There's some challenges. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, not unlike some of the challenges I faced when I first started here. So um, I know what I'm getting into to a certain degree, and I feel like I've been successful in in many ways dealing with that uh, same type of issue here. Yeah, well, you definitely brought stability to a job that was unstable prior to you coming to the island. I think you said at one time that, you know, you thought the island was going to be your last stop. Right. Without going into too much detail, um, what made you change your mind besides your kid living in another state and wanting to stay connected? Yeah, well, he he actually moved uh, moved to California uh, the day we moved to the island, so he he was he was gone when we moved here. But um, kind of thought he'd he'd maybe come back. That didn't happen. He met a girl. I, I think just in a number of different factors, um, one of the things I I found is that the last three jobs I've, I've had have been very similar communities, um, affluent communities, uh, not very diverse, a lot of white people. Um, Hashtag Crackerville. Yeah. <laughs> and communities that... Um, really had a distaste for growth and development. And I started looking back at one of the first jobs I, I had where a lot, of, a lot of the work was around economic development and community development. You have a background in urban studies, correct? Yes, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I started putting that all together. You know, it'd be nice to finish my career in a community where I can really make a difference in people's lives, and Banning is one of those communities. It's you know it's very diverse, uh, just under forty five percent Hispanic. It is a very low income community. They need jobs. They need economic development. Uh, they need a local government that can provide good, efficient, quality services that. Um, yeah, you know, communities like Bainbridge Island, Medina, Normandy Park, uh, because of the level of affluence in the community, City Hall isn't necessarily doing people a whole lot of good in terms of the work that's done. I mean, it's good, but it's if someone wants to improve their quality of life, they don't they don't need to rely on the city to do it. Banning is a place where people need to rely on the city to to improve their quality of life. What are some of the first projects that you're going to tackle down there? Well, one of the things, uh, and, and this is, is part of the just drastic differences between Bainbridge Island and Banning, uh, the city council there recently approved a 4,000-lot subdivision. I mean, we get four-lot subdivisions on the island, and it freaks some people out. Uh, so this is going to be... Um, yeah, when you when you have a subdivision that large, you are looking at all kinds of infrastructure that has to go along with that, including schools, 
schools, uh, jobs, parks. water, park, yeah, green space. So managing that growth is going to be uh, a really important issue, but also attracting jobs. Um, right now, they've they've got some uh, real strong possibilities that um, I'll be working on, helping to you know kind of be the closer. Bring, come in and, and make sure it happens. Uh, make sure it happens in a way that is good for the community because, you know, not all growth and development is good. You, you want to make sure it's done right and that it's done in a way that you have a long-term benefit for the community. Um, What's the main industries down there in Benning? Uh, right now they, they do have a, a regional hospital, so uh, there's some medical... Uh, certainly, is uh, you know medical focus. Um, there is really starting to develop a, a logistics um, focus. So um, there's a million square foot distribution center planned to go in. Uh, there's a f- what are they distributing? Uh, it's a logistics distributor. So uh, you're talking over my so head, man. <laughs> it's well. It would be something like UPS or DHL or FedEx, something like that. Um, so could potentially be an Amazon distribution center. I was um, going to ask that. Because I, I haven't been sworn in yet. I, I'm not privy to the, the specific details of it. But uh, uh, you know, a million square foot distribution facility will, will certainly bring some And some is jobs. that near a, a railroads or water or what? Yeah, the railroad, um, main inter- highway, Interstate Ten is um, major interstate that goes cuts right through Banning, uh, and that that goes directly to L.A. Um, Banning is is situated pretty close to well, eighty miles from L.A. It's about a hundred and ten miles to San Diego. It's a four and a half hour drive to Phoenix and. A two to three hour drive to Las Vegas. So from Banning, you can get to some pretty significant large metropolitan areas uh, in half a day or less. What's the um, water like out there, air quality? The, what's, what kind of temperatures are regular? It's pretty hot, right? It's Yeah, it's pretty hot. Summer months, it's um, yeah, not uncommon to be in the upper hundreds, 110. Um, They've had some forest fires in in the area, so air quality we've you know experienced here the last few days is is um, what it was like when I was visiting. Um, but it's also located between two mountain ranges, the San Jacinto and the San Gorgonio mountain ranges. So uh, water is is from the mountain ranges, snow melt, um, and you get some pretty good airflow through the pass. So yeah, good. Um, it's it's not not entirely what people think of when they think of Southern California. I wish you all the best there. Thank you. Um, geez, I had one more question I wanted to get before we get out here. Um, oh, impact of tourism on Bainbridge Island. How important is tourism, and does it impact Bainbridge Island economically for the positive, or is it something that you know drives the locals out of their own? local shops for three months out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a big tourism boom here as a destination spot, you know, whether it be kayaking, bicycling, um, outdoor sports, 
trips to further Puget Sound areas and, and national parks. Um, what is the impact of tourism? And then the second part of that is, what about the main, everybody trying to get to Seattle that doesn't live on the island that drive through on 305? Um, what kind of impacts do both those things have on our uh, community here? Yeah. Tourism has a big impact on the on the local economy. Um, we probably wouldn't have much of a downtown at all if it wasn't for the, the tourist part of our economy supporting those businesses. Um, one of the things we've we've really experienced in the past few years is uh, increase in tourism because of the cruise ship um, industry that's yeah, and the water, emerged in, in water, Seattle. Walking walk on water taxi. Yeah. 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 And a lot of the um, a lot of the hotels in Seattle, you know, guests from out of town that are visiting, they want to go experience the Pacific Northwest Islands, and yeah, you know, they want to do it in a day trip. Well, you can't really go to Orcas Island in a day and experience the islands. So they send send the tourists to Bainbridge Island to get a little bit of a taste of what it's like to. To be on an island in in the Pacific Northwest, yeah, and then the trip back to the city is is gorgeous. Yeah, you know, being on the boat, right, right. I so, know the Seahawks when they entertain a new signing, they put them on the ferry first thing. Okay, didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the impact of traffic on three hundred five and what that costs us, based on people that don't live on the island or contribute to, or perhaps may not contribute. Maybe they do in some way that I don't know of, but. There's a lot of traffic accidents. There's only two ways off the island. Um, it's very impactful, you know, like the STO and the, the bridge that we had contemplated building. The road is not super safe. They're talking about having a roundabout now. Um, what's the impact of 305 on the island from non-islanders? Mm-hmm. It's pretty significant. Um, but one of the things we've we've seen in the traffic counts that, that really surprised me is the traffic count from from the bridge, Agate Pass Bridge, to the ferry terminal decreases significantly by the time you get to Sportsman's Club Road. I would have, before I saw the data, I would have never believed that to be the case. They're just all going to so the gun range or what? We, yeah. <laughs> We have a lot of people using 305 on a daily basis that are commuting onto the island. And for what? Um, it could be school district employees, city employees, park district employees, um, industrial service, shops, service down workers. There. Yeah. 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 So it's a, I, I don't think there's any, you know, any one uh, location or destination to be blamed for that, but I think it's a, a broad range. And it, you know, it really demonstrates that the affordable housing issue on the island could be something that would have a real positive impact on 305 traffic. Mm. Yeah, I, you just, so many questions. I mean, how do you see, um, you know, the green growth and the affordable housing? Because we haven't touched on that at all. And how builders should build in the future. That's that's a question I'd like to uh, end on, as well as um, the funding of the police station and and what's happening there. Okay, 
Yeah, so the, the green building issue is something that's really exciting. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, we have a world-renowned expert on the island, an uh, architect by the name of Jason McClellan. Um, he was one of the founders of the Living Building Institute. Uh, and um, along with Jason, there are a number of other architects and individuals on the island that have uh, expertise in green building concepts and and uh, we've we've started to have discussions with those individuals and and one of the priorities of the city council is is to develop a green building code the focus has has really been not on identifying one specific model to pursue but to look at the objectives of all the models and set our program up so that if someone comes in to and, and their goal is to achieve certain objectives that match what the city objectives are. It doesn't matter whether they're following the green building challenge or, or any other green building model. As long as they're meeting the objectives, um, that's kind of what, what we're focused on. Uh, the affordable housing the task force report was, was discussed Tuesday night uh, with the city council. The uh, again, community volunteers, community members that that spent a lot of time talking about a variety of issues related to housing affordability, put together an amazing report. Um, if you haven't read it, if your listeners haven't read it, I would strongly encourage you to go to the city website and do that. There's some uh, fantastic recommendations and conclusions, data uh, to be gained from from reading that. Uh, it's a real good starting position to to focus on taking action to provide more affordable housing on the island it's going to be a heavy lift obviously um, land prices here are outrageous and that's that's going to be one of the major factors and obstacles facing the city yeah I think it's a tough transit transition from you know low income to affordable housing um, to fitting in with land purchase here on the island and the current situation. What is it? Uh, lead building or? Yeah, lead is is one of the. Can you uh, describe that one, to me? One I'm not programs. Completely familiar with that. Well, um, th- most of the green building programs, and, and lead lead is one of them. Focus on um, not doing damage to the environment by building new new structures. The living building challenge is actually, it goes a, a step beyond that to not only being net neutral, but actually how can we build facilities? How can we build buildings that actually are a positive contribution to the environment? So um, it's, it's really, you're, you're talking about construction methodology. You're talking about the materials you use. Um, you're talking about uh, use of water, use you know, sewer systems. So they're, they're, it touches on almost all aspects. Uh, it could be as simple as putting in composting toilets. What regulations do we need to change in our city code to allow that to happen? Because right now, if you're in a sewered area, our code says you have to hook up to the sewer. No human manure. Right. No composting. Right. Would, <laughs> would we suffer a fine if we had a little outhouse? And- 
Well, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get your building permits, and if you had, yeah, if you had an outhouse, uh, you'd probably get a a visit from Kitsap Public Health pretty quick. Wow, <laughs> that blows me away. Um, police station. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about selling the current uh, police station land, perhaps making that a parking garage, which I, I'm not really excited about. But then we didn't have urgent care or emergency care on the island for a while. We built a hospital structure and uh, was a retirement center together. And now it seems like the police are going to obtain that now that Virginia Mason went in by pro-build there and Walgreens. Is that correct? That's, or is that a, not a done deal yet? Well, it's not a completely done deal yet. Um, the city council has authorized a letter of intent that we sent to um, – CHI Franciscan. Uh, that intent is that we want to purchase the property. Uh, so we are now working with them on negotiating a purchase and sales agreement that will come back to this council, and then the council will decide whether or not we're going to move forward. Um, the exciting piece of that, and I can't say a whole lot about it because it's it's nobody's listening. It's, an, it's just me and you. Tell it, me, it's an issue between CHI Franciscan Virginia Mason. But this opens up a door to actually have a significant improvement to healthcare on the island. Um, How so? And it's it's an opportunity for two competitors to to actually work together to to provide a level of service that's higher than either one of them can provide separately and um, I think what what the end result looks like it will be is more of a true emergency room service on the island on the as opposed yeah. as opposed to to urgent care options that don't always meet the needs of the island. And we're set, sitting here in Studio 15, um, Three Tree Lane. Am I correct to say that city uh, took a, a portion of Three Tree Lane out here in front of the studio and obtained that through eminent domain recently? The city council do that? No, no, that didn't happen. Uh, Was that <clears throat> talked about? We were we were actually talking with the um, the owner of the property uh, two three years ago. And we were very close to negotiating an agreement to purchase the property, not through a domain, but a market purchase. Um, <clears throat> the owner passed away suddenly, and that, that kind of changed family dynamics. And after things settled for the family, they decided that they weren't ready to, to sell the land. So um, we did have conversations with the city council about options, raised the issue that, you know, eminent domain is, is a legal option the city had, uh, but that wasn't something that the council wanted to pursue. So we, that's when we moved on and started looking at other options and, and landed on the Harrison facility. That we're so the studio's safe? Studio is safe, yes. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, is there anything you want to get out, a shout-out to anybody? Um any topic that you want to make sure that we get get out here to the public as well? Well, I, I think one of the things to touch on uh, related to the police facility is the current site. Um, right now, there aren't any plans that the city has to 
to do anything with that site. That, that hasn't been a discussion we've had with the council. The corner on Winslow. The corner on Winslow. Uh, I know there, there may be some rumors out there. In, Lots. In 2006-ish, uh, the city conducted an urban design plan for the Ferry District, and that property is obviously a key piece of, of that potential redevelopment. Um, I I don't think it would be in the best interest of the city to, to sell that property at this point. So they own it. There's not a lease that's about to expire that's no, pushing the move. city owns that property. Great. Um, that's it, Doug. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've certainly uh, made some great friendships and appreciate all the community support that uh, I've been privileged to receive during the six years I've been here and, and uh, wish nothing but good things for Bainbridge Island. Well, continued success in your new um, capacity, and thank you for coming on to The Bystander. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind.